0: we have been journeying throughout this Advent with Mary as our guide, latching onto her declaration, I am the Lord's servant, as the model declaration of all whose hearts are aligned with God's. And I want to begin um, perhaps with a little bit of a confession, a personal testimony of my struggles with this declaration. I am the Lord's servant, and why it is so hard for me personally. If you were to ask my wife what my greatest character flaw is, just one, <laughs> I don't know, I think she might say something like this, where she's, she might say, Jin has a real hard time with control. She might also say something about my dirty laundry, but I think that's where she would land. I don't need to be in control, but I have a real hard time when someone else is in control over me. I used to say I never met a decision I didn't want to make. I want to be in control of my story. So for me to come to this story of Mary, who says to God, I don't need my story to be about me. I don't need my story to be about me. I submit myself to your story. I am the Lord's servant. To hear that, it goes against so much of my wiring that has been ingrained in my system for the past 40-plus years. What Mary models of discipleship goes straight to the heart of my most persistent sin. But this is precisely where I think God has been at work in my life. So, as I've begun to understand the joy of being called into other storylines, where I am not the main character, where I am not in control, ironically, I have experienced a deeper, more intimate awareness of being part of God's divine narrative in a way that I have always longed for, but didn't think was possible to achieve. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone, but if it does, say amen. I am the Lord's servant. <laughs> it has been reorienting me now so far in our studies mary hasn't said a whole lot she ponders she obeys she acts and when she has spoken it has been deeply personal and she has this incredible art in her brevity and conciseness profound but brief how can this be i am the lord's servant May it be to me, as you say. That is, until today. Mary breaks her silence with a song. And what she says, what she sings, is actually not what one might expect. Let me back up a little bit. Many of you know that the Annunciation of Mary was a very popular subject in medieval and Renaissance art. And again, I am no art expert. I am that guy that can go, however, I am that guy that can go to a museum, and I know not to say I can paint that, okay? I know just enough. But she is always dressed in blue, the color of the sky, which represents her purity, her innocence, And on her face, Mary's visage is the epitome of gentleness, beautiful and sweetness, maternal warmth embodied. And that's the part that she is portrayed, especially during this time. Holy and determined, to be sure, but passive and quiet the perfect vessel. She is all those things, but she is so much more. And as I sat with her song, The Magnificat, this week, I encountered a very different quality that took me to places that I simply did not expect to go, of strength, of power, a prophet declaring God's kingdom reign on earth. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say about this. This song of Mary's is the most passionate, most vehement, one might almost say revolutionary, Advent hymn ever sung. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas songs, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from the thrones And humbling the lords of this world of God's power and of the powerlessness of men. These are the tones of the prophetic women of the Old Testament, Deborah, Judith, Miriam, coming alive in the mouth of Mary. Bonhoeffer preached this in a Christmas message in 1933, Germany. The year Adolf Hitler became Chancellor. Mary is invoked to oppose the Fuhrer. His mercy extends to those who fear him. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry but sent the rich away empty. Yes. These are words of absolute comfort and peace. We are not forgotten. We are seen. But they are also plainly words of prophetic power and justice. And certainly, Herod and Caesar would have understood that. Even in modern times, where there existed oppressive regimes. The church was often forbidden to preach on the Magnificat. So, how is it that we have come to tame Mary and this song so much? Part of it, I think, as we have been learning, is because it has just that hard for us to hold together the qualities of humility and obedience and submission with the qualities of power and strength and determination. Everything in our world, in our reality, says that those categories are antithetical. So we often excuse the powerful for not having servant qualities. Or we admire servant qualities in people, but rarely Aspire to them. But humility and power, strength and submission, this is what Mary embodies here in her song. Bonapha says, this Mary filled with the Spirit, obedient servant of the Lord, who humbly accepts what the Spirit asks of her, speaks now with the power of the Holy Spirit of the advent of Jesus Christ. She knows better than anyone else in history what it means to wait for the Messiah. She is closer to him than anyone else in all creation. In her body, she is experiencing the mystery and the wonder of what happens when God's story becomes incarnate, becomes our story. And what she says is filled with stunning insight into what happens when the Christ story takes root in our lives, when glory and meekness intertwine. This is Mary's description of Christmas. The key to all this, according to Mary in this Song of Songs, is this one quality that she now uses to describe herself, humble, my soul glorifies the Lord and rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Humble, not as immodest, but lowly, without means. But this isn't a passive state. In scriptures, to be of a humble state requires participation It is acceptance and recognition of our humanity. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles will be exalted. God opposes the proud, but has favor on the humble. As our son Jesus would teach later on, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. The point isn't that some are lowly and in need of help, and some are not. The point is that some are aware of their need of God's grace and some are not. The rich aren't condemned for their riches. They're condemned because their riches have become their God and know not how to turn to God. The poor and the humble and the poor are closer to this reality than the rich and the proud. As Paul would say later on, for in our weakness, he is strong. Mary is the first disciple, not out of some great personal piety or quality of character, even though she has those in spades, but because she is willing to humbly submit her story within God's story, and it is her lowliness, her need for rescue, that she points to for what makes her blessed. Mary's awareness of our humble state doesn't stop there, though. This is no individualistic spirituality of self-fulfillment through abnegation. Instead, she now aligns herself in spirit-led empathy with the lowly and the outcast. He has lifted up the humble, and he has filled the hungry. If this is your plight in life. Think about how powerful and comforting and freeing it is to hear these words from the mother of Jesus declaring God remembers us. God remembers you who are forgotten by society. God remembers you when you think no one knows and hears your cries. God remembers you God sees you. God will lift you up. But now she calls upon all of us. It is with her humility now that leads us now to prophetic empathy. This Advent journey with Mary leads us not to high places and powers, but into the depths, to the humble and the hungry and the poor and the needy, to the homeless and the refugees, for this is where God chooses to come in the manger among the shepherds and where God loves to dwell and where God calls upon his people to meet him. This is Philippians 2, where Christ, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing and became a servant. And this is why N.T. Wright describes this song as the gospel before the gospel. Some of you parents, you know how you know what your child is thinking or feeling even before they know it? My mother is an incredibly intuitive person, and even now it blows my mind that she knows exactly what I, what I am feeling even when I am actively in denial of it. Well, Mary, this young woman, She is sort of channeling the heart of her son right here, divine empathy grasped by Mary that now guides her heart to the people who are forgotten, to others who are in humble states of their own. One of the things that I've been struck by in our study of Mary is just how well she already knows God in such ways that stand in such a stark contrast to other encounters. So, do you ever notice in all of the birth narratives what Mary doesn't say when the angel announces to her? You will conceive a son. You shall name him Jesus, the son of the Most High, and his kingdom will never, never end. In a world where class and status meant everything, she doesn't say what might be the most obvious protest. She doesn't say, why would you choose me? I am but a lowly, poor, peasant girl. There's There's something surprisingly unsurprised in Mary's reaction because she knows that God, this is God being God, God who will come to serve rather than be served, humble and vulnerable and stripped of his powers to be with us who are truly humble and helpless and powerless. This understanding of the nature of God's empathy now guides Mary's heart to others. So now you can see the connection between Mary's humble state to a movement in empathy for others who are in need and marginalized and now to divine justice. For Mary, it makes perfect sense to be humble, obedient, a servant, and to make this prophetic declaration of God's just reign. In a sense, to scatter the proud and to bring down rulers from the thrones and to send the rich away empty is the logical reordering Of the disordered values of our reality on the basis of a God who comes to us in a manger and who would later die on a cross. The manger becomes the beginning of the ultimate resistance of the values of our world that would say, you have to be rich to be great, you have to be powerful to be something. It is the place where Mary prophetically declares whether. The outcasts and the marginalized and those without any advantages of privilege are seen and heard and rescued. So we have to approach this manger similarly, humbling ourselves and getting on our knees. And we really can't get on our knees unless we can get on our knees with others who are already on their knees. God lifts up the humble for this purpose. Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, has come into the world. So it is. In just two days, we will celebrate Christmas. Everyone wants to be clear about Christmas. There's so much talk. There's so much desire and longing And I think it reflects the human heart in the way that God has designed for all of us, for hope, for something meaningful in a world when sometimes so many things that we put our trust in seem to fail us, where our systems seem to be broken in so many ways that we don't even even know how to have conversations with one another about how to even begin to fix them. So there is a lot of reflection on what it means to really, really, really celebrate Christmas. And the struggle to do that can be hard. So much so that we might just kind of give up on that altogether and just say, I'm just gonna do this thing and worry about the other thing at a different time and a different venue. There's a part of me that wants to kind of default sometimes to something much simpler. I had a conversation with somebody where I told him, as he was struggling with, we were having this conversation about the meaning of Christmas and why some people seem to be uncomfortable with, uh, why some people seem to be comfortable with celebrating Christmas, and yet at the same time have a hard time bringing up, or be offended when you bring up Jesus. Christ Jesus Christ into that conversation. And I wound up saying to him I said, "Well, you know, it's just this thing that we have where we are so much more comfortable with baby Jesus versus the Christ child that we encounter." And I thought a lot about what it means to approach the baby Jesus this week and And he winds up not being all that safe after all. (laughs) And how this baby Jesus makes demands on our lives and seems to have an opinion even before he could say anything. And about how Mary sets this incredible stage for the gospel to take place and to be heard. And so it winds up for me that Christmas again becomes the beginning of the renewal of what it means to be clear-headed about the gospel. To listen to Mary talk about this kingdom reign and her description and all the facets that makes us wonder which side of this Are we landing on? What would it look like to be clear headed about what all of this means in light of Mary's declaration, in light of this song? So, what would it look like to accept the whole of the Christmas story? In what ways are we being called to accept a lowly, humble state? In what ways? Do we need to realize that God sees us precisely in our lowly, humble state? And to whom are we being called to meet God in empathy? Whose pains and sufferings and hungers have we ignored that we ought now to turn our attention toward? It is this full Christmas story that takes the pains and the suffering and the hungers and the troubles of this world, and that gets wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. That's a complicated song. That's a simple song. May it be the song of our lives